The Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. That means, among other things, that if you want to be able to accurately address life's big questions, its most important considerations, you have to know this book. You have to know the Word of God. And so with that in mind, I encourage us all to open or click in our Bibles to Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. For the past several months, we have taken a break from our sermon series in the book of Genesis, but this morning we return to it. And it seemed wise to me to to review, be it ever so briefly, uh, some of the ground we've covered. Of course, we can't possibly... Uh, go back through all of it in the the depth and and do it the justice it deserves. And yet, at the same time, we need to have some sense of where we are in the book and what's happening, so that as we resume our study of Genesis, we, we know how to take the new information and put it in its proper context. And so this morning, we're going to briefly consider, briefly reorient ourselves uh, with regard to the direction that Genesis is taking. Toward that end, I thought we might consider three things, and in my judgment, the last of those is by far the most important, and yet we are going to look at all three. So first, we're going to ask ourselves, what story is Genesis telling? What is the story being told in the book of Genesis? Second, what are the truths that Genesis assumes as it tells the story? Another way of saying that is, What doctrines are being taught? And finally, and again most importantly, what is the main point of Genesis? What theme is being developed? And those three main points are on page 13 of the bulletin. If you like to follow along with an outline, you may do so there. What story is being told, what doctrines are being taught, what theme is being developed? Before we go any further it would be wise to ask for help from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Spirit of God, you wrote this book. You directed Moses, perhaps even dictated to him directly in the tent of meeting in the wilderness, what this book was to say. And so you alone can reveal it properly to our hearts. And so we ask for that this morning. Where we need to be convicted, let the word convict us. Where we need to be built up in faith, let it build us up. Where we need to understand you more accurately, enlighten our minds. Where we need to praise you more fully, open our lips through its word. Let us see the the story of Genesis, the doctrines of Genesis, and the theme of Genesis in a way this morning that honors you and edifies us, your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is the story being told in the book of Genesis? Well, I'm going to remind you um, that this book was written a little bit later than some of the other biblical books. Though it comes first in its canonical order, it was not written first. It was written while the people were wandering in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt. 
And I want you to think about what that would be like. Have you ever asked yourselves some of these big questions of life? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What am I doing? Is what am I doing even meaningful? As a general rule, when we are fully engaged, fully occupied, fully uh, about the business of being human beings in this creation, we don't tend to stop and ask those questions. When we are at work and the project that we're working on is satisfying and meaningful and fulfilling, we jump in and we endeavor to do that project well without thinking about, why am I even doing this? When we are busy with our families and raising them and directing them, we don't tend to think, what point does this have? When we have in our lives the the opportunities to do the things for which we were created, we tend not to ask why we were created. It's in those down times. It's in the quieter times of life. Perhaps... For you, it hit when the empty nest hit. I no longer have the children in the home. I'm no longer directing them and providing for them. What purpose is there in my life? Perhaps you lost a job. And without that vocation, without that occupation, you found yourself asking, what's the meaning? What's the point? What's the purpose? The the things for which we were created, even as we have considered in Psalm 8, to rule over and have dominion, to raise families, to build culture, when we're engaged in those things, we don't ask. But consider the plight of the children of Israel in the wilderness around the time of 1440 BC. They are wandering with no home with no opportunity to build cities or houses, to open businesses, to plant farms, to develop culture. They have no land over which they can rule and take dominion. They are very realistically homeless. And so I imagine that with that lack of purpose, with that missing that opportunity... To, to do the things for which we are created to do, they had to be asking themselves, why are we here? What are we doing out here? What's the point? And in fact, we have in the record of the book of Numbers that many of them said, let's turn around and go back to Egypt. It was better there. We know that they were dissatisfied with their lives. But their homelessness is not like what we usually think of. For a typical homeless person in our society still is occupied. Where's my next meal coming from? How do I get the clothes I need? Can I find shelter when the weather turns? They're still occupied. But the Israelites had none of those burdens. And I will say this, none of those occupations. Their clothes never wore out. Their tents never decayed. And their tables were never empty. Every morning there was manna. And all of their sandals held up for 40 years of wandering. They didn't even have the distraction of wondering 
where today's provision would come from. Theirs was an utterly undistracted, unoccupied existence. And I have to believe that in the midst of that, they spent a great deal of time going, what is the point? Why are we here? And every day Moses would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God. And we suspect that one of the things that was happening in that tent of meeting is that God was dictating to Moses the book of Genesis. He had written the books of Exodus and Leviticus and probably parts of the book of Numbers during that, those few months between the departure from Egypt and their arrival on the border of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea. But at Kadesh Barnea, when they failed in their faith and therefore failed to take the promised land, and they began to a 40-year wandering in the wilderness, it's then that the book of Genesis is written. And it is written in part to answer the questions we have been asking. Why am I here? What is my point? That's the story being told in Genesis. Moses is telling the story of how the children of Israel came to be, and specifically how they came to be, who they were, where they were. Moses is telling a story written for God's people to explain their place in the world. Now, the story that Moses is telling in Genesis will inform those who are atheists, It'll inform those who are not believers, but it wasn't written for them. It was written, as is most of the Bible, for believers, for the people of God. And so we here today, as Christians, as the church, as the New Testament people of God, need to recognize that the message of Genesis is a message for us. It also explains why we're here, and what we're doing, and what our purpose is, and what is God's plan with regard to us. Genesis speaks across the centuries, across the uh, countries, across the continents, and across the cultures. We, the church, are the people of God, and therefore we, like them, may at times feel unsatisfied with life and stop to ask, what am I doing here? And the story of Genesis helps to answer that. So very quickly, an overview of what's happened in Genesis. Kind of the the highlight facts. Chapter 1 was the account of the creation of the cosmos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it unfolds a little more detail about that. Without necessarily the details about how long or how long ago this all happened... Moses makes incredibly plain that the God of Israel, not those gods that we left behind in Egypt, not the gods of the Mesopotamian surrounding cultures, but our God, he's the one who created all that we see about us. Elohim, the creator God, is the name used in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 2, Moses steps back, And he goes back into that creation and looks specifically at the creation of humanity, of mankind. How Adam was created first out of the dust of the ground. How God breathed into Adam the breath of life. How he took from Adam a portion to make into Eve. 
so that Adam would have a wife. And so when you ask the question, what am I doing here? When the Israelites said, where did we come from? A part of the answer is, God made human beings. And he made two of them, male and female, so that they might make more human beings. You're here because God wanted human beings upon the earth. Specifically, he wanted you upon the earth. Genesis 3 Oh, so sad, sad Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the account of Adam and Eve transgressing the limitations God had put upon them. And they become doomed to die, um, even as they go about their work and their childbearing, uh, they are doomed to die. And their work, their childbearing, the things that God created them to do, become subject to a curse. And this life becomes much harder. If Genesis 3 is the account of how sin entered the world, Genesis 4 is the devastating account of how rapidly a seemingly small sin, a piece of fruit eaten that shouldn't have been eaten, quickly gives way to a grievous and terrible sin. Cain, steeped in his false religion, kills his brother Abel in a fit of jealous rage. The first small step off from God's path leads to unthinkable wickedness. Genesis 5 is the account of two uh, opposites in tension with each other. Life goes on. So-and-so begat his son, the son of so-and-so, who then begat the son of so-and-so, who then begat the son of so-and-so. And yet in the midst of that, we see the tension of death reigning. In Genesis 5, each verse ends with, and he died. And he died. And in Genesis 5, there is this tension between the life that God created and the death that reigns on earth because of sin. If Genesis 4 plumbed something of the depth of human sin, that it would go so far as to kill another human being, Genesis 6 considers its breadth, the spread of sin. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and Yahweh regretted that he had made man upon the earth. Genesis chapters 7 and 8, then look at God's judgment upon the breadth of sin on this earth, the flood narrative. Genesis 9 is the revelation of the covenant of God with Noah, God's gracious kindness to humanity in Noah by offering a covenant. But then how does Genesis 9 end? With the recipient of that gracious covenant immediately falling back into sin. Genesis 10 took up the question of God's super uh, 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 super intention uh, of all of the nations of the world. That God's hand was behind the spread of the peoples upon the earth. And then Genesis 11 We step back in time and we consider how those different peoples, how those different nations arose, how it is that languages became divided as we look at the Tower of Babel. The close of chapter 11 introduces us to an important family, the family of Terah and more specifically his son and daughter-in-law, Abram and Sarai. Now we can't keep going at this slow pace. We need to pick it up a little bit. 
But we do have to stop and consider the significance of Abram and Sarai and what was said to them at the opening of chapter 12. God makes two significant promises to these two people. Whereas God had commanded Adam and Noah and their progeny to take dominion over the earth, to Abram, Yahweh promises to give the land for his dominion. God is now going to step in and make that dominion possible. And whereas God had commanded Adam and Noah and their progeny to be fruitful and increase in number, Yahweh promises Abram, I will give you offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky or sand on the seashore. God's covenant with Abram and Sarai is no longer for all of humanity, but it's now focused on a specific subset of humanity. Through Noah, as the, or through Adam as the head of the human race, the covenant was for him and all of his offspring, all of humanity. For Noah, as the refounding, refounder of the human race, the covenant with him was for him and all of his progeny, all of humanity. But for Abraham and Sarah, the covenant with them is not immediately for all of humanity, but it is for them and their descendants, for those who would walk in the faith of Abraham and Sarah. And yet, even in the midst of that promise, God says to Abraham, through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. There is a universality that is not quite as uh, uh, overarching as it was in the Noahic covenant, and yet God is going to reach to all people through Abraham. And in many ways, the rest of Genesis, arguably the rest of the Bible, is really the outplaying of how God fulfills those promises to Abraham. The rest of the story is God doing for Abraham what he said he would do. And thus, to dear Israel wandering in the wilderness, you want to know why you're here? In part because I made a promise to Abraham, and I always keep my promises. All right, like I said, we can't keep moving at this pace, so we've got to pick it up a little bit. Genesis 13 through 18 are, in summation, the account of Abraham's repeated failures and God's continuous faithfulness. Abraham's repeated failures and God's continuing faithfulness. And yet, even in the midst of Abraham's failures, what do we see? His growth, his sanctification, his maturity, his increasing faith. So the God is not only faithful to the promises to Abraham, but he is faithful in growing this man so that he could someday be regarded as the father of all the faithful. The story being told in Genesis really is the story of why God saved slaves out of Egypt. Dear Israel in the desert, why are you in the desert? Because you're not in Egypt anymore. And why are you not in Egypt anymore? Because I made a promise to Abraham that I would provide for him a great offspring and through those offspring a great blessing to all of humanity. Now I imagine that did not satisfy every question they had. But it is a remarkable thing for God to say to them, you're here 
because of my past promises and my future plans. Dear church, you are here because of God's past promises and his future plans. And we may not know every detail of how that works out. But when you ask those questions, what's the point? What am I doing? What's my purpose? It's found in those things. God's past promises are being fulfilled in you and his future plans are being worked out through you. What are the doctrines being taught in the book of Genesis? Can't possibly unfold all of these in the fullness that they deserve. But I will point out a couple of things that are important here. One, many of the doctrines that we saw in the book of Genesis, we found kind of in a hidden way. They're assumed, they underlie the assumption of the book of Genesis and might easily be missed. So way back when we began this series a year ago right now, we actually took a a look at Genesis 1-1, and the sermon was entitled, The Verse That Says So Little. And we compared it to all of the other ancient creation accounts, and we saw how all of them have to give an account for where their gods came from. There was a, an origin story for their god. Genesis 1.1 just says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't say anything about the origin of God, but assumes that he has none. Yahweh is self-existent. And unlike Apsu or the other gods of the uh, Mesopotamians, uh, Yahweh needed no consort. Remember, Apsu had Tiamat, and they came together, and they produced the waters that did this and blah. God just, on his own, is able to do everything he wants to do. Yahweh is self-sufficient. Unlike the Mesopotamian gods, Yahweh needed to consult no one. He is all-wise. Unlike the Mesopotamian gods, Yahweh was not surprised by human activity. Remember, we read that account a year ago about how the the Mesopotamian gods, they, they made people on the earth, and then they were shocked by the way those people behaved. Yahweh was not surprised. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Unlike the Mesopotamian gods or the titans of Greek mythology, Yahweh meets zero opposition. There is none who opposes anything he does. He doesn't need to overcome. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. We saw no discussion of God's abode or residence. He is omnipresent. And finally, we saw no explanation. Remember how Marduk, it said, created humanity to appease the other gods. So humans were created to be the slaves of the gods, so that Marduk would get along with the rest of the pantheon. There's none of that in Genesis. There is no explanation for why God created. He is sovereign. He answers to no one. He has no reason to give an account for what he does. The doctrines of God were, are underlying and assumed in the teaching of Genesis. Each of those would be worthy of at least one sermon in and of itself, but we move on. We've looked at the doctrines of man, what may be called anthropology. We saw how mankind was created in God's image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. They were created to work as God worked, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And they were created to procreate as God created, Genesis 1, 28. They were created to be in families, 
it is not good for man to be alone. Remember, man, in the context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, doesn't usually mean male. It means humanity, people, a human being. It is not... It was not that it was not good for Adam to be alone. It was not good for man, male or female, to be alone. They were created to be in families, in cultures, in in societies, in churches, in groups. Created to cultivate and to keep the earth. We considered man's responsibility before God with regard to this earth and and the creation upon it. And we saw that man was created accountable to God. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, you may not eat. A limit put so that they would always be reminded that they were not God. Created in his image, but not him. Quick review of the anthropology of Genesis. We see in Genesis the doctrines of sin, homartiology. I never can say that one. I'm our theology. Um, Sin, we see, is any disobedience of God. You say, well, that's not actually explicitly said in Genesis. No, it's not explicitly said. But it's pretty clearly illustrated by the nature of the first sin. The first sin is not some, you know, a murder or or a genocide or, you know, a a rape or, you know, things that we might regard as egregious. The first sin seems to us to be of no consequence at all. All he did was eat a piece of fruit. But what is being taught? What is being taught is that sin is any defiance of God and his commands. We saw that sin brings death. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we explored death more carefully recognizing that in the Bible, death is not the, the, the end of existence, but rather death, whether it's before or after your physical death, death in the Bible is an existence where you are out of accord with God, where you are at odds with God. That's why it is true that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Though they didn't drop over dead physically, they were instantly out of accord with God. They were instantly at odds with God. They were instantly at enmity with God and were therefore dead. And this is why the Bible talks of hell as the second death, the eternal death. For it is an existence. It's not that you cease to exist but rather that one exists for all eternity out of, out of accord with God, at enmity with God. So we saw that death entered through sin. And we saw in Genesis 5 that death reigns upon the earth. In Genesis 6, 7, and 8, how death becomes widespread as an act of God's judgment upon sin. We have seen theology proper in the book of Genesis, the doctrines of God. We have seen anthropology in Genesis, the doctrines of man. We have seen homartiology, the doctrines of sin. And notice how I I tweak the wording on the fourth point in this section, an undercurrent of grace, soteriology, salvation. It's not that grace is explicitly set forth yet in the Bible. But the, the attentive Israelite in the wilderness 
the one who is conscientious, has to be saying to him or herself, we're as bad as them. We're as sinful as the Egyptians. We're as bad as the people in the days of Noah. We are as sinful and as wicked as all of these people who died, and yet God saved us, set us aside, and did not rain his judgment upon us. And they begin to recognize Father Abraham, I had built him up in my head. I had this view of this guy. I'd heard stories about Abraham and what a great, wonderful guy he is. And now that Moses reads Genesis to me, he did a lot of bad things. And yet God set him aside. And Sarah, she was a pretty cantankerous woman. She was pretty harsh with her maidservant. She was pretty tough on her husband, and yet God set her aside. And the undercurrent of Genesis is that God, though he judged the world in the flood, he set Noah aside. You see, this is why this review is important. Because next week we're going to be looking at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet God set Lot aside we are going to be reminded over and over and over again. Having looked at the story being told, this is where you come from. This is why you're here in the wilderness, dear Israel. Having looked at some of the, a survey of some of the doctrines underpinning our study of Genesis, I want finally to look at the theme being developed in Genesis. We come to the third main point of our Genesis review, the theme being developed. Now, I said at the top that this was the most important point, and I suspect at this point, a few of you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, how can a Presbyterian pastor review the doctrines of God, the doctrines of man, the doctrines of sin, and the doctrines of grace, and decide that something else is more important than those? And I admit, it seems like a risky proposition, so far as I've stated anything, but I'm confident of this. For all of those other doctrines matter to the point that we understand this doctrine. That we understand the theme of Genesis. It's only in the understanding of the thrust of Genesis that the doctrines of God, the doctrines of man, sin, and grace come together to be meaningful. For if we have those doctrines apart from the main thrust of Genesis, we have mere facts that provide us very little. There are many who can articulate accurately the doctrines that we have briefly reviewed, and they are in hell, because they have failed to understand the main theme of Genesis. And there are many who are bound for glory because they have embraced the theme of Genesis, but they would struggle to articulate some of those doctrines. It is the theme of Genesis that becomes uh, important. It is intertwined in the storyline. It is informed by these doctrines. But it's the theme of Genesis that changes lives, renews hope, that opens eyes, that converts hearts, that brings the dead to life, and makes friends of those who were enemies. 
So what is the theme of Genesis? Chapter 4, we have Cain versus Abel. We have those who worship falsely versus those who worship in truth. In chapters 4 and 5, we have the difference between Lamech, who boasted in his wickedness, and Seth, in whose lifetime men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In chapter 6, we have the Nephilim, these men of renown, these men who seem great in the eyes of the world. And we have Noah. In chapter 11, we have the Babylites versus the line and the generations of Shem. One leads to chaos, the other to a people whom God loves. In chapter 12, we have Pharaoh versus Abram. In chapter 14, we have the five eastern kings versus Abram. In chapter 16, we have Hagar versus Sarah. So what is the theme? Look down now at Genesis 3.15 and follow along as I read. I'm actually going to go back to verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, deceive the people. Cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. I will put enmity. I will make enemies of two groups of people. I'm going to drive a wedge so that two groups of people are alienated toward each other, so that there's animosity between them. That's a synonym for the word enmity, animosity. You see, in Genesis 3.15, this verse is often referred to by the technical term, the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first, evangelium, fancy word for the gospel. It's the first giving of the gospel, the first good news. Now, if by that you think, you're thinking to yourself, well, the gospel is, you know, Jesus came and lived a perfect life, and then he died an atoning death, and then he, uh, uh, he was raised in a justifying resurrection, and then he ascended to the throne on high. And by that, if you mean the fullness of all of that that was fulfilled and made manifest in Jesus and which awaits its consummation in his return, no, that's not all there in Genesis 3.15. But what is there? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Remember the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Think about it. You will surely die. You will be at odds with me. You will be at enmity with me. You will have an existence that is not what life is supposed to be, and it might as well be called death. But I will put enmity. I'll drive a wedge into humanity. So that there will be those who exist at odds with me, angry at me, my wrath upon them, my judgment looming over them. But then there will be this other group. And if portion of humanity is God's enemies, then the enemies of that portion are now God's friends. God says, I'm going to drive a wedge in humanity. Not for the purpose of destroying it, 
but for the purpose of saving part of it. So that not all will suffer the death they deserve from sin. In the day that you eat it, you will surely die, but I will put enmity. I will drive a wedge in humanity so that some might be saved. So that some will not get the wrath they so richly deserve. Did we see in the New Testament reading, did we hear Jesus' language? Do not think that I came to bring peace. I didn't. I came to bring a sword. As Luke says it, I came to bring division to slice humanity into two groups. And Jesus is always consistent in those two groups. Jesus only ever sees two groups of human beings. There are those that build on the rock and those that build on the sand. There are those that go through the narrow gate and those that climb over the fence. There are those who are on the, path, the wide way and those who are on the narrow way. There are those who are his mothers and brothers and sisters and you know, family and those who are not. He even comes and says at one point, those who are not with us, those who are not against us, are with us. That's it. There are two groups. Jesus affirms what is taught in Genesis 3.15. You know, we hear something like that. God's driving a wedge in humanity. God's splitting humanity into two groups. It sounds so negative. But it's not negative if what God is doing is breaking off a group of humanity to return them to life. In the day that you, plural, all of you, eat of it, you will surely die. Now I'm going to take back from that a portion of you. And I'm going to let you live. The theme of the book of Genesis is a theme of God saving part of humanity. Of God working out his promise to Abraham. Dear Israel in the wilderness, you want to know why you're here? Dear church in Easton, you want to know why you're here? Because God was not satisfied to let you stay on the path to death. Would this life perhaps be easier if he had done so? Yeah. I will put enmity between you and the world. It's not fun to endure the animosity of the world. It's not fun to endure their uh, uh, hatred for us. It's not easy sometimes to be at odds with this world. To be at odds with family members, neighbors, perhaps even your own spouse. And Jesus says, I, I, I came, I did that. I will turn a man against his son-in-law, a mother against her daughter. But I did it so that some would be saved. So that those who were willing to lose this life may gain eternal life. The message of Genesis, the theme of Genesis is God saving fallen. You want to know why you're here? It's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's to the praise of his saving work in us.
What a wonderful reason to exist. No matter what might be frustrating in this life here and now, that's good news. Let's pray. Lord God, we do not always recognize your work within us. We don't always remember that you have torn us apart from this world, that we are at odds with it, that we are, that there is enmity between us and this world, animosity, hatred, because of the work you're doing. And so when we are discouraged, when we are downcast, when we are struggling to understand the purpose of our existence, remind us of the message of Genesis that you are at work saving for yourself a portion of fallen humanity, that we are at odds with those around us because you have separated us from them, that we are experiencing enmity precisely because you have pulled us back from that group headed to eternal death. Let us rejoice in that good news, in that glimpse of the gospel, in that understanding of your work here on earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.